Prognosis Ohio is brought to you by, well, you, because we don't do advertising on this show. Instead, we depend on the support and the kindness of listeners. If you like this episode, please help us to make more by becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month. To do that, please go to patreon.com slash prognosisohio. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. You'll get a t-shirt, but you'll also help us cover our costs, and you'll get all the good feelings that come with that. Thanks. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. On episodes over the last year or so, we've talked to a number of Central Ohioans who do great work in our community, and without which we'd be in a lot of trouble. Despite how horrendous the pandemic continues to be, these people are silver linings and sources of hope. Today, we get back to this important work by talking with Arye Alex, who works as an ambassador for the Columbus Metro Parks System, is executive director of the Ohio House Democratic Campaign Committee, and he's an elected official in his own right as a trustee for Franklin Township. Beyond Ari's many roles, in our conversation, he shares his experience with Crohn's disease, which reminds us that many of the policy changes we fight for are also very personal. And by personal, I really mean personal, as you'll hear some frank talk about bowels and other bodily functions, and not just as metaphors for the state of the world. I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation, not only because Ari's a fantastic person, but because he brings such perspective and insight to so many different facets of our life here in Ohio. This is Prognosis Ohio, I'm Dan Skinner, and let's get right to our conversation with Arie Alex. Hey Ari, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I, I, I pride myself on being active and involved in the community, but I have to say, you're just everywhere. <laughs> and you know, involved on a number of levels. It's really impressive, but I, I just feel like you're one of those people that uh has found ways to make your life not just involved, but involved in like qualitatively different ways. Um, So I thought it'd be cool to talk with you to explore kind of the various pieces a little bit of of the things you do um, and hopefully touch a little bit on, you know, the ways they directly connect with health and healthcare, which is what we talk about on the show. I had originally written to you uh, because you talk about having Crohn's disease and you know, Crohn's is something I know a little bit about. And I wanted to start there because, you know, on this show, we've talked about um, some of the diseases, uh, health conditions out there that don't get talked about, that there's stigma around. We've talked about genital cancers of various sorts, for example, in the show. I talked about my own testicular cancer experience. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to, to start there and ask you, I guess, you know, uh, what's your experience with Crohn's been? What what is it like talking and being open and out there with the different parts of your public life and having this uh, condition? That's a great question. Um, so I was diagnosed in 2012 uh, and I originally just thought I had, you know, bad diarrhea and stomach cramps and, and pain. And then my then uh, fiance, now wife said, no, this is something different. You really need to get it checked out. And I think like, uh, most uh, men, I was hesitant to go to the doctor to talk about it. Uh, when I did, I, you know, I was quickly diagnosed with Crohn's after a, a colonoscopy. Um, and then I went through something called step therapy uh, to kind of start to get it into remission. And I hadn't known about this, but this is where uh, the insurance company pretty much says, you have to start with this course of treatment, like the cheapest course of treatment for the insurance company. Even though my doctor at the time thought I should be doing something differently. And so this went back and forth for a few years where I 
changed medicines and things weren't working all while my symptoms were and, and condition were actually getting worse uh, to the point where I was hospital, hospitalized a few times um, and uh, ultimately you know, finally got on the medication that my gastroenterologist had originally wanted to prescribe several years earlier, which put me in uh, to remission. So, you know, it, it was a lot of pain <laughs> and a lot of money and time kind of go through this terrible process. Uh, and while I was going through it, I thought it was really important um, to, to kind of document and share this. I post a lot on social media already and already was. And I started incorporating that because it was some, a disease that I didn't know much about. But it was also one of those diseases that I think there's a lot of stigma when you're talking about bowel movements and gastroenterological uh, problems. Like people want to avoid that. They don't want to talk about poop and farts and diarrhea. And so I was like, hey, I'm just going to put it out there and let folks know what I'm going through uh, to kind of remove the stigma from, uh, from it. And uh, that's been something I've been doing. Every time I go get infusions, I talk about it. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is just crazy is that one of my infusions without insurance would be 30 or $40,000. Uh, and it's an infusion that I have to get uh, once every six weeks. It would be something that would be extremely cost prohibitive for almost anyone to be able to afford. I mean, luckily I have great insurance uh, that's provided my by my employer, but it's one of those things that it's just uh, helps understand the kind of picture that people, uh, how, how their lives can be completely upended by a disease like this. Um, so, I mean, that's just a little how it fits in. I'm happy to, to dig in on any aspects of that. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you, 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 you went right for it, right? Insurance companies, uh, poops, farts, uh, all that stuff. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, we just <laughs> jumped into the real stuff here. What's been the reception you've had when you have conversations with folks do they understand what this is? You know, I think, for example, most of what I know from Crohn's disease, just to be honest about, is the television commercials, right? And you see them all the time around these various inflammatory bowel diseases. Um, but I, I suspect that, I mean, they're, in those commercials, they're still talking around the, 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 the thing itself. So do you feel like people, you know, know more and more about this? Or is there still a misunderstanding out there? Or is it just something that people know nothing about? Well, I think it's a combination. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting when I started talking about it and posting about it, uh, a lot of my friends and people that followed me on social media would, you know, message me or, or call me up and say, oh, I know someone that has this or I have this. Um, and the sheer volume of that, that was pretty surprising to me because it seemed like something that no one else had. It was a very, you know, a small amount. And as I talked more about it, I found out more and more people knew about it or had it or had experiences with the disease. Um, you know, one of the things that I found uh, interesting when I started talking about it, a lot of folks, you know, had a lot of sympathy and they said, oh, I'm so sorry that you have this. It's just terrible. Um, and one of the things that I always felt was, you know, yeah, it sucks, uh, but I, like, I'm talking about it so that, you know, we can do it. I'm in remission and there's treatment. And it's one of those things that you shouldn't be afraid to, to talk about and go to a doctor about. And I, I didn't really want any sympathy. I wanted to just kind of um, make it more normalized to normalize the entire uh, disease and process, even though it's a pretty terrible thing to have. Yeah. Um, I thought by, you know, 
adding humor to it and, and talking about it more um, would make people understand that, you know, look, when I'm running to go to the bathroom, like get out of my way because I got to go. <laughs> and it's not like I'm, you know, taking off work because uh, I say my stomach hurts just to lay around and watch, you know, some old episodes of Star Trek. It's because I literally can't put pants on to come to the office. Right. Um, and so doing things like that were, were interesting. Uh, but like just, yeah, the sheer number of people that knew someone or knew about the disease really, really surprised me because it's not one of those things that is often talked about. sort of like raising your hand in a public forum and saying that you experienced depression or addiction. I mean, I know that you came to your work and we're going to turn it to in a minute, but I know that the opioid uh, crisis and addiction in general is something that's important to you. And this mirrors it even, even though it's a very different kind of thing, right? Just this, this question of like admitting vulnerability, even talking about our bodies. I mean, Part of it is because in the United States, we need to think about discrimination. We need to think about how that's going to be received by employers and you know whether it's going to be perceived as we can't do our jobs or we're in some way um, going to be more expensive, certainly from the insurance side. Yeah, that I mean, and that's that's exactly right. Like, you know, now I posted about this disease hundreds of times, you know, if an, I'm applying for a job ever and an employer looks and finds it and says, hey, this is a very costly disease. Right. I don't want to hire this individual because I know that they may have half a million dollars of insurance premiums in a year. Um, and that's that's a risk. And I think it's a really terrible thing in our society where people have to hide their mental and physical illnesses because of uh, the fear that they won't be able to get a job that they desperately need to have insurance to then treat those ailments. And I think that that is a, just a systemic failure. Uh, of, of our society at the moment. It's amazing that when you do, you know, tweet something or post something, you know, and of course, what, what I'm going to say is, is is a real statement coming from a, a position of privilege. And I realize that I, I have a cushy faculty job at a university, um, but you can't take it back, right? There you are. Now you're out there. You've just written about your testicles, right? <laughs> you've just you've just talked about addiction, um, you know, and, and, and in a way we need more people to to do that. And that is a normalizing thing, but there's that kind of cliff jump moment of like, okay, well now I'm, I'm out there talking about my bowels, you know? There are a lot of things that I would, I've regretted posting on social media over my years, but my Crohn's disease and like the, the treatment and the expense of that is not one of them. Like those are things that, like you said, I think people need to talk about the more it's talked about, the more uh, relevant it becomes to the larger conversation of how health insurance and care and treatment is treated in this country. And, and what have you learned about vulnerability? I mean, going through this, I mean, I think everybody who, you know, is like feeling good, uh, is identified as healthy, you're kind of living in that, you know, part of your life. And then all of a sudden you're the person with X uh, disease or condition. D- did you have to go through an adjustment of learning about like that, that it made you look at the world a little bit more differently? Did you think about empathy in new ways? I, I did. Um, I also, I really got a better understanding for the, just the, the like the medical professionals and, and the caregivers at these hospitals, at the doctor's office. I mean, at one point I was in a doctor's office every other day uh, for, for some sort of treatment or test or something. Um, and I saw people a lot worse than me, worse off than me, uh, both physically, uh, financially and, and other ways. But I also saw um, 
the toll it was taking on me, but everyone else around me. Um, and you know, something that when I think you're going through like this, you don't want to really be a burden. Um, but you know, I think it's, it, 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 it's definitely given me a lot more empathy and dealing with others, uh, and also just how I relate and engage with the world and like those around me. So let's turn to one of the other things you do. And I have to tell you, every time I see that you are, if I have it correct, uh, president of the Friends of Columbus and Franklin County Metro Parks, yeah, I think I want to be that. Um, and, and I see, you know, just the championing you do for the Metro Parks, our beautiful Metro Parks here in Central Ohio. Um, and, and I'm curious in particular, uh, you know, the Metro Parks have been something we've talked about more and more through the pandemic. They've been these places for me. Uh, these places of respite where we can do social distancing and also kind of get our heads clear. Um, What does that work look like that you do? And how do you connect, you know, your interest in health uh, and just being out in the community, out in the world uh, with that Metro Park work? Well, I actually um, started going to Metro Parks when I first moved to Columbus uh, over a decade ago. Um, I didn't know a ton of people here. Uh, I wasn't physically well. I was very overweight. Uh, and I think my mental headspace was not in a, a great spot. So I started visiting Metro Parks and I had never really enjoyed nature. I'd much preferred to play video games and, you know, watch <laughs> movies and eat pizza and take out food. So I started visiting these Metro Parks and, and you know, I started one mile trails. They were a struggle. Uh, and I started getting healthier and enjoying being out in nature more. And I would do more and more uh, trails and more miles and exploring different parks. And I really fell in love with them. Then I started volunteering at the parks. uh, And then I was asked to to join the board. There was a a very small garden club called the Friends of Metro Parks that had a handful of members. And they were, you know, wanted to to do something bigger and better. And they wanted some, some young people involved. So they asked me to get involved. I got on the board. I became president and we really took the organization from a small um, kind of garden club with a dozen members to thousands of members. We have a paid full-time staff. Now we have an endowment at the Columbus foundation. We are raising money. And what we've really done to help transform that, the, that organization is to bring people into the parks. Uh, Not necessarily people that already are in love with the parks and going there. We're trying to find new people that have never been out in nature um, or, you know, maybe just drive by and sit in their car. I don't know if you ever notice when you're in a park, someone will be sitting in their car just enjoying it, but they may be afraid to kind of go out and explore it to find those individuals and give them a a great experience, particularly focused on communities of color and low income areas, because those one parks are not as accessible in those areas, but also being out in nature, there's a stigma around that. And we know that if we can get children um, and families into parks and have a great experience, uh, it, it will not only diversify those fields that relate to parks and conservation and sciences later on in their careers and in their lives, but will uh, bring um, the, the, it will have the parks represent the communities that they're actually in uh, and are supposed to be supporting. So that's something we've really tasked with. We helped run the levy that supports the Columbus and Franklin County Metro Parks in 2018. It passed with the most votes any metropolitan park district in the state of Ohio has ever gotten. And we ran that 10-year levy 
on the, the pledge of a kind of expanding access and inclusion into the parks in a big way. Uh, and now we're doing a lot of advocacy around the parks. Um, and that, that particularly now in COVID, as more and more people are attending those parks, um, I mean, uh, attendance in park, the park district this last year was the highest it's ever been. Uh, and yeah. it was already on an upward trajectory just based on our population increase in the region, but there was a huge spike and likely uh, attributed to the coronavirus because, like you said, it's a place where people can go clear their head. They can be physically fit. I'm in a metro park every morning when it opens up at six o'clock to get a few miles in, to yeah. clear my head, to be physically active. And th that's now what we're focusing on as the, the friends to kind of uh, capture those first time individuals and make sure that they keep coming back after the everyone's vaccinated and, and healthy uh, and they're still taking advantages of these great natural places. Yeah, when, whenever a guest on the show mentions that they are looking for money and funds for something good, I like to just remind everybody, I will be linking to that in the show notes. And, um, you know, we're always looking for worthy things to support. I'll have to say though, I, I kind of scoffed at this, you know, I, I heard a friend of a friend complaining that, you know, their beautiful Metro parks were now overrun by all these amazing, these people who were going because of COVID. And I thought, what a weird thing to complain about. You know, I mean, we're, it's so glad that people are using these Metro parks, but certainly some of the longtime folks are noticing that more and more people are there. Um, and that's definitely a good thing. So complainers should, uh, you know, probably just go away <laughs> with, with regard to that. Well, I would uh, also say, go check out a different park. Uh, if, right. if one of your parks is getting busy, go check out one of the other ones. Uh, there are, you know, hundreds of miles of trail all over central Ohio. There are greenways and uh, you can bike and run and hike. If you get a kayak or canoe, you can do a waterway, uh, water trail. So, you know, uh, yes, it's, it, there are a lot more people in the parks, um, but I think that that's a, a great thing. Uh, there's plenty of space to socially distance, uh, put your mask on uh, and, and keep on uh, hiking to, to another trail until you're alone. So to connect our, our conversation about, you know, your experience with Crohn's, I mean, it's a kind of obvious question, but I know when I go to parks, but when I go anywhere, you know, I'm in my 40s, so I start getting anxious about, you know, where I might need to go. <laughs> you know, uh, how, do you, how do you think about that when you're going through those spaces um, and, uh, and during the winter, it may be different than the other months of the year. Is that something the parks have worked on, uh, thought about accessibility for bathrooms and, and, and things like that? That's a, a really good question. Um, when I started uh, get, going into Metro Parks, they had a lot of what they call pit toilets, which are just essentially, you know, a little fancier, um, like porta johns or porta lets. Um, yeah. And the, the parks have really, uh, and, they, and they've done this all on their own without advocacy from me or, or others that I know of, uh, moving towards having facilities that have more running water, to have cleaner, more ventilated facilities, and to have more uh, bathrooms that are accessible. It is definitely something that I think about. I, when I am going to a park that I've never been to for the first time, or which I've been to all the metro parks now, but if I go to a state park or a national park, you know, I will look at the trail map and say, where's the bathroom? Where's the next bathroom? Um, you know, oftentimes I can go miles and not have a problem or, you know, not have any problems all day. Uh, but it's one of those things that's in the back of my mind that I look at. Uh, I know Metro Parks has done a really great job. There are bathrooms at most trailheads. Um, they're accessible. Uh, they're clean. And, and they're something that, you know, someone like me doesn't have to worry about. 
but you know, I go to a, a national park where there may be a you know five or six mile trail. There may not be a bathroom at that trailhead at all, uh, and that sometimes can be a bit worrisome. Right, or you get to one and it says use the next one, and the next one is you know some distance away, which doesn't really work <laughs> for everybody. Yep. Yeah, well, you know what? It's some some I, I won't I won't say where, but there may be uh, some crones poop somewhere in a park at some point uh, <laughs> that uh, that might have just uh, couldn't wait to a bathroom. <laughs> well, listen, you know. Um, justice right, I guess. right. <laughs> so let's turn a little bit to another um, part of your life which is you are a trustee uh, in Franklin Township um, and you know I, I've read about some of your work and it's very in the in, in the in the the nitty-gritty details of um, you know working with the fire department working with various municipal issues I know that addiction was something that you, that's really important to you but I want to start with something really dumb and I'm I'm a political scientist so I've studied you know states and counties and cities and all that I don't really know what a township is uh, can you tell me what a township is how does it differ from a, a town or a city? Yeah. So in Ohio, um, there are underlying townships. That is the smallest form of municipal government in the state. And it's the unincorporated areas. Um, So everything is technically a township until it gets enough population to incorporate into a village, uh, if it chooses to, or if it chooses to incorporate into a city, um, then then that, that land moves into those areas. Uh, There are huge townships uh, in some parts of the state that are plenty big enough to be cities, but they've kept their township form of government just because the, the voters there have never uh, chosen to, to do that. But it's um, completely governed by the Ohio Revised Code. So it essentially has all of the same authority or similar authority to a county commission, uh, but everything is dictated in the, the ORC. Uh, it's governed by a board of three elected township trustees uh, and, and an elected fiscal officer. Um, and they are constitutionally required to provide fire uh, and EMS service, uh, maintain roads, township roads in those communities, and um, take care of cemeteries, um, oh. which uh, is something that local governments are required to do. Everything else is, is added or um, additional. So, like, we have our own police department. If we didn't, the sheriff's department would would patrol our areas. We'd pay the sheriff's department to do that, but we have our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, we work with other county agencies like health, the, the Franklin County Public Health, the health district to provide services. Uh, and, you know, our, our township is really interesting because it's been annexed to death by the city of Columbus. And we are about 32 non-contiguous little islands um, <laughs> that make up the whole township. It's completely inside the 270 belt. It's in the Southwest quadrant of Columbus. Um, but you know, the city, as the city has grown over the years, it has, has annexed bits and pieces here. And it's kind of left us in this, this uh, hodgepodge of little groupings of, of township. So, um, so, I mean, doing like administrative work against a, between all these non-contiguous areas must be really, really difficult. It is uh, an extreme challenge. Uh, the, the other thing is we just don't have any revenue anymore. Uh, so we used to rely heavily on the local government funds, which have just been gutted by the state over the years. 
Uh, and townships rely solely on property taxes or property tax levies. So we don't get any income tax or sales tax or anything else. Uh, so everything we get is on property value. And, you know, we have a, a very low income community with pretty low property values for the region. Uh, and it just means that providing services, you know, we have two fire stations, uh, a police department and a roads crew. Um, providing all of those services to a non-contiguous area is very costly. Uh, and it, it's really unsustainable uh, unless there are some real changes at the state level to, to townships. So how, how, how does health, uh, you know, um, inspection, I mean, do you, do you also contract with Franklin County or do you have any of your own kind of operation that deals with specifically health related issues? We, um, we do, we contract with Franklin County public health. Um, uh, that's, uh, one, one of our, our, our big expenses. We also use, uh, we have, you know, two fire stations with EMS, um, and firefighters there. And, and we really, utilized our firefighters and EMS to do a lot of public health outreach and engagement in ways that I think um, are pretty non-traditional for townships to do. We've done a lot of Narcan trainings. Uh, we, the, our zip codes uh, have some of the highest overdose rate in Franklin County. Uh, so we've done multiple uh, Narcan trainings and giveaways. We've done CPR uh, trainings, free CPR trainings for, for residents. Uh, we've done a lot of health uh, expos and awareness events, particularly in the large and growing Somali population in our community. Um, you know, we've we've partnered very much with Franklin County Public Health to, to go into these communities and to do a lot of educational awareness, um, which I think is something that, you know, for someone, an entity that doesn't have its own health department for us to kind of utilize our existing staff structure uh, is really great. And I'm really glad that our firefighters have agreed to volunteer for some of this work that's kind of well out of their scope uh, to, to kind of do that and support the community. Um, and it's been a unique way for us to do this. As we learned you know, through the opioid crisis, which we're still in, we have to remind ourselves, but also the, the COVID-19 pandemic, any number of professionals around the state have had to relearn or learn new skills or play different roles uh, during this time, right? And you know, so you're learning about um, you know, whether, whether it's the role of social work in relationship to the conversations around policing and not, not depending on police or calling police for everything, but thinking about what are the resources you might have on the community level. Um, I mean, it sounds like in a small place like Franklin Township that you might need to do that kind of stuff as well. That's, that's absolutely right. I mean, our, our firefighters and police officers, uh, when I started, were, were so uh, upset with just the sheer number of you know runs that they were doing on people that had overdosed uh, and they wanted to know how they could be helpful. And they stepped up and said, look, if we can train people how to, and they were giving Narcan when they arrived on the scene. Uh, so one of the things we said, like, look, if we can train people to carry this and to have it available to them. It's, it will help one, reduce our workload, but two, like keep the community healthier. Um, and I think we're doing a lot of things now around COVID uh, and, and how can we be, helpful there. Um, and that's, those are discussions that we're having now in Franklin County Public Health, particularly as the vaccine hopefully becomes uh, more widely available and our folks can be supportive and, and helping in any way they can. Ah, uh, the vaccine, the elusive um, uh, symbol of hope for right. so many. <laughs> Thank you.
you know, I have to say, when when we you and I talked about having this conversation, we floated some dates, and I said there is no way I can talk to Ari uh, before the inauguration because there was so much anxiety, so much concern about you know violence, about um, what might happen. That I just wanted to know that that was done before you and I talked, um, and 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 certainly just knowing that there's you know stability, that there's a plan in place aside from the Democrat versus Republican kind of piece of it. Um, certainly today is different than it was two days. And for listeners, we're talking on Thursday after the inauguration. Um, so as executive director of the Ohio House Democratic Caucus, uh, what do you do? I mean, tell me a little bit about that work, how it fits into your larger work and you know, any involvement or thinking, anything you've learned around the health and healthcare space and where the state is. Yeah. So I, I run the campaign side of uh, the House Democrats, which is uh, really interesting. It's one of the things about we recruit candidates, we train candidates, we then support them. Obviously, we had a pretty disastrous year uh, this last year in Ohio, and particularly on state legislative races, particularly because of gerrymandering and all of the other um, kind of factors that we have in this state. Trump increasing uh, his margins here was really detrimental to our efforts. But gerrymandering is over now, right? Can you, right? Gerrymandering is well, over, right? We do have a new we have a new process to do uh, to kind of redraw the state. But look, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm under no illusions that we're going to get fair districts unless we really fight for them and hold the Republicans accountable. <laughs> no, I know. I was just I was just trying to see if I could get you to tell me that it's all over so we can move. Boy, <laughs> I wish I could say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so like, you know, the, look, I took this job when Minority Leader Amelia Sykes uh, asked me to. I, she said that, you know, she needed help to, to run uh, the political side of the caucus. Uh, and when the Minority Leader asks, uh, you don't say no. She's such an inspirational and amazing woman. Um, I kind of watched her from a distance before I took this job and was just absolutely uh, amazed at, at how great uh, a, a real leader she is. Yeah. And um, listeners so- will also remember she was on the show a few months ago talking about racism as a public health crisis. And so, you know, but that was about eh, maybe five or six months ago at this point. Yeah. And, and, and like, those are the things like those kind that kind of leadership, like her pushing uh, for a declaration of, to, you know, to make declare racism a public health crisis. Like those types of actions are the things that like inspire me to work and help recruit candidates and to find individuals that are in alignment with those values that are going to be anti-racist, that are going to kind of reconceptualize our healthcare industry uh, and all the things that impact our lives. You know, a lot of folks think that by electing a president or Congress or the U.S. Senate, uh, we'll see daily changes. Uh, And that's not often true. Uh, That usually takes years to work through that process. But at the state legislative level, you can pick up a couple of seats or switch, uh, you know, flip the governor's race and see daily changes in your life Uh, from potholes, uh, having money to fill potholes to fully funding our public health care systems. Uh, to investing in public education, to, to investing in parks. Uh, there are a host of things that you can do at the state level that impact us uh, in a positive way or in a negative way, depending on who's in office and what you believe. And like that is something that I, uh, you know, there's no better way to kind of uh, ensure that the values that I hold and that many other Democrats and progressives hold uh, than electing folks. And that's one of the things that I really have the, the privilege and, and honor to do in this role. 
So, you know, thinking about people like uh, Representative Sykes, you know, we've talked on this show and uh, about how many folks in Ohio in the past few years with, you know, uh, masters of public health degrees and also in some case, uh, you know, MDs and DOs, physicians, um, but also other kinds of health background and addiction and thinking about social work. so I, I wonder if I can just get you to talk a little bit about that. I, I routinely talk to students and to other clinicians around the country who say, oh, we need more physicians in office. And I say, yeah, well, it depends on what they're you know, advocating and what their perspective is. But okay, I think we need more family med, med folks and more uh, primary care folks and people that do obstetrics work and things like that um, and people who want to serve in rural capacities. Um, it, it depends where you come at that. But as somebody who works in terms of trying to you know, improve the pipeline of people running for office. What would you say to those, because we have a lot of, of uh, health profession students who listen to this show, if they were thinking about that as a pathway, like how do you have that first conversation with somebody who wants to pursue office and thinks that as a health professional, they have something unique to bring to the conversation? Well, they absolutely do have something unique to bring to the conversation. Uh, when we look at you know, elected healthcare professionals in the state, it is a very small number and almost all of them are in the Democratic caucus. Um, not only is it important to have different professions represented, but to have people that listen to those people in those professions. Um, and the best way to kind of change policy if you're upset with something is to run and then fight to have that policy changed. It's as important to have outside advocacy as it is to have a seat at the actual table. There's nothing more powerful than being able to go into the state house and take a seat and be able to vote on something that you believe in or you are opposed to. Um, And that is really powerful. And if if you want to make a change, um, particularly when it comes to to healthcare and and, and larger public health issues, like being having a seat at that table is important. And it's not just state house stuff, city councils, county commissions, local offices, have a huge impact on these issues. Uh, And I think would encourage people that are in science and health and medical backgrounds to be serving in these roles. Because yes, we're in a a pandemic now, but there are multiple health crises that are are out there from climate change uh, to the opioid um, epidemic, to the pandemic we're in now, to uh, racism. I mean, these are all health-related issues. And we need people that understand the science, understand how policy impacts that work, and that can actually make a difference. You know, we, we can, people like me can help get those individuals elected and run the campaigns. We just need them in office so that they can use their expertise and their background to make that change. Yeah, I also just mentioned, put in a plug for our next episode that's going to be after this one. We're going to be talking with um, two two representatives from the Ohio Clinicians for Climate Action. So talking about climate and the way in which clinicians, um, including physicians and, and other folks in, in medicine and healthcare, um, you know, just exploring what they bring to that question is something that I think we didn't really think about that much 10 years ago. And it's really great to see more and more clinicians actually stepping up, joining these organizations and being part of them. But also putting pressure wherever they can, local or uh, you know state level or, or beyond. Uh, I wonder if I can just ask you uh, in closing, you know, so if you had the Ari Alex, um, you know, crystal ball. Actually, crystal ball is the wrong word. 
just your wish list. What are one or, one or two or three things you would just love to see Ohio take care of that you just think are so obvious that we need to do, uh, maybe kind of stifled by annoying politics and gerrymandering and things like that, but it's so obvious that it would help the state and help the people of our state that you would love to just see it get done this year or, or soon. I mean, I think you mentioned it, like there's nothing more important than like ending gerrymandering. I think it is uh, our, our districts right now that donors uh, select the, um, the politicians and politicians select what voters that they want. And voters are really out of that process. You either live in a Democratic district or a Republican district. And that means every issue that people care about are, are forced to be um, kind of stalled because of these partisan uh, efforts. Uh, when we had, uh, you know, fair districts um, or when people work together because you get more competitive districts, people that are willing to work with each other, that means things like climate change can actually be addressed uh, funding for our education system, uh, funding for our local governments, which is absolutely critical right now. Uh, I, th- these are things that can happen and can and can you know really move quickly when there are fair districts, and that that's both state legislative districts and congressional districts. And if we see right. that change here this year through that new redistricting process, I think we could have a real decade of prosperity in this state. Uh, where we have competitive elections, where we have, you know, real movement on some critical issues. Um, And if we don't, I think we will continue to see this trend of young people leaving the state for uh, more progressive, more open, more equitable states um, and communities. And we'll see our cities continue to struggle with funding and financing, uh, which will ultimately compound the problem. Uh, And I fear that you know, our state, uh, we have an opportunity to kind of stop this slide in the, in the wrong trajectory now um, by fixing and getting new districts. It's tough though, right? Because, you know, in my experience, especially working with health profession students, but also just in my life as a political activist, talking to other people out there, you know, people care about you know, reproductive rights or they care about um, addiction or they care about taxes, you know, or something like that. Like these kind of uh, you know, specific policy areas. But when you then say, well, look, all of that is really important, but the process, the democratic process itself is actually the thing we need to spend time on. Eyes sometimes glaze over because those aren't things that people feel comfortable. They don't have strong opinions on, or they just don't understand. Like even gerrymandering, I think most people now, or a lot of people know what it means basically. But when you talk about how to remedy it or what what needs to be done, there's just not really good civics understanding there. So I, f- I think it's really interesting that more people are now understanding that it's not just where you fall on the specific issues, it's your commitment to understanding the basic mechanisms of democracy that need your attention. And that requires a whole different set of conversations. And I'm, I mean, I'm glad that you are out there talking about them, but I don't see that as being the norm um, amongst people who are driven by strong feelings around specific policy issues. Well, and I think you're absolutely right. And if people think that the system is broken and that they have to fix the system before they get their issue dealt with, a lot of people are going to glaze over and say, yeah, all right, that's just, no, right? right. Like, it's just broken. I'm just not going to do, do it. Um, and the fact that we're talking about this now and that more people know what gerrymandering is than they did the last time this happened a decade ago, the fact that democracy as an issue is kind of at the national forefront uh, now in, in a big way, in a way that it has never happened, that people are talking about the census, 
that people are talking about voting rights and uh, ensuring that we have fair elections, which we do. Um, I think that the fact that that is happening now, I think we are in a much different place than we were a decade past when this first gerrymandering happened. Obviously, we have a, a long way to go, but we need to figure out how to engage people. And I think if we can actually get fair districts, people that are engaged in this process feel that the system is working again or on a better path, maybe they'll feel more engaged to do this. But if we mess this up in a, in a big way now and people feel that the, the system is compounded in how broken it is after this process, I think we're going to be in a world of hurt. And I think we're going to lose a lot of really great people that really care about this community and state. Yeah, we got to get people to convert their 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 thinking, right? At that moment where they say, "Oh, politics is just so corrupt." It's like, "Yeah, well, here's why. Let's make it less corrupt." Right. Or nobody listens to us. Well, let's make them listen to us. Right. And almost everything that's happened transformatively in public health and in healthcare reform has happened because people got really not just I mean angry, frustrated, but channeled that into some kind of action. So, it sounds a little corny when I say it that way because it is very like you know, I mean, this is very sort of just like heartfelt uh, democratic sense, a small d democratic, like democracy. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that we need to realize that our democratic processes are the underpinnings of transformative work in health and healthcare. You're absolutely right. I, I hope more people do, whether that's showing up at a meeting and just, you know, listening to what's happening or running for office or um, just a little, even the little thing of hopping onto a virtual zoom meeting of your local planning commission, like that can be a huge impactful thing, uh, that I think that the more people we have engaged, the better off we will have, uh, our society and democracy. Well, Ari, I want to thank you for taking some time to talk about all these different things. We have our work cut out for us with the show notes because you, um, are involved in so many different kinds of things, but we want to do justice to them all. And, um, you know, thanks for the work you do in our communities and, uh, you know, hope we'll have you back to talk on the show at sometime soon. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Many thanks to Ari for joining us for that really interesting conversation. We're including a bunch of links in our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com so you can learn more about Ari's work and support some of the causes, especially Central Ohio's metro parks, that Ari champions. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me and Mark France. We're super excited to have extra production and social media support from Claire McGee, a senior at Ohio University who's going to be serving as a Prognosis Ohio intern throughout the semester. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio. As always, we encourage you to reach out via email or social media with your suggestions and your feedback. As I mentioned also, we welcome ideas for important issues you'd like to hear us engage with on the show. We've received some really cool ideas for shows over the past few weeks, and some of them have already materialized or been scheduled, so we're really appreciative for that. Make sure you subscribe to the show and stay tuned for our next episode, which is going to be dropping in two weeks. It's on clinician activism and climate change here in Ohio. Okay, that's it for now. Stay well, be healthy, and wear a damn mask.